Welcome to Cinema Journal Presents Acamedia, and I'm Christine Becker, here with my co-host and compatriot, Michael Kackman. Howdy. Michael, it's episode 13. Uh-oh. Yep. Oh. Uh, are, you, uh, are you superstitious? Should be... Uh, sorry. Are you superstitious? Should be we... Damn, sorry. <laughs> are, you are you superstitious? Should be... I think we should, should we that. be? <laughs> yeah. See, I can't even get this oh, out. Man. Clearly, we're, we're... episode thirteen is starting disastrously. Uh oh. All right. I'm feeling pretty good about it, though. Are you? I'm. I'm trying to stay optimistic, and I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna pull this off. Okay. We'll see because we have a great collection of SCMS-related information. Indeed, this is the primer on getting the most out of the conference because it's coming up just a few weeks from now, and we wanted to help equip everyone with the info they need to make it an even better experience than ever before, and even looking toward next year's conference in terms of prepping proposals and all that. We've got some information that we think will help you out. Yes, indeed. And what we specifically have is two interviews from our co-producer, Bill Kirkpatrick. We talked to two key people involved in setting up the SEMS conference. That's Angelo Restivo, the SEMS program chair, and then Bruce Brazel, who helps construct the SEMS conference schedule. So you're going to get loads of really helpful information from these interviews. And then I also produced a segment with the very generous help of some folks on the host committee about some key Seattle attractions for those of us out-of-towners coming in for the experience. So here we go. Lucky episode 13. Let's make it happen. All right. Hi, I'm talking to Angelo Restivo. Angelo Restivo is Associate Professor in the Department of Communication at Georgia State University. And he is also a member of the Board of Directors of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies and Chair of the Program Committee for SCMS. This year. This year, okay. <laughs> uh, Angelo, welcome to Acamedia. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. So in preparation for the conference coming up in March, we just wanted to chat with you a little bit because I know a lot of our members are interested in and have questions about exactly how does the process work. We send in our submissions in August and then, you know, Several months later, we get a yes or a no, and then a month or two after that, we get a slot on a program, and uh, so the whole thing seems like a black box that we hope you can illuminate for us. Oh, sure. First of all, in our, in our spring board meeting, or at our spring board meeting, we put together a program committee, and the program committee this time had 22 members, so we ended up with 11 reading pairs. It turns out that each reading pair will get assigned somewhere around 120 to 130 either open call proposals or panel proposals. For the open call proposals, we divide them up according to the categorizations that the author of the proposal gives to us. We have the uh, divisions, aesthetics, philosophy, auteur genre, social political critique, technology, industry, historical, archival, and audience. And so each of those different areas will go to a different reading pair. 
The thing is, though, that for social and political cr critique, we always get about three times the number that we do in the other categories. So, for example, we had somewhere around 360 social political critique open call proposals, whereas in the other categories, they averaged around 120. So we have three reading groups for social political critique, but for the others, we have one. Then we have three reading groups for the uh, pre-constituted panels because we got about, well, this time we got about 347 pre-constituted panel proposals. So that added up to about up between 110 and 120 per reading group there. So the actual workload is heavy for these people who are volunteers. I mean, this is all volunteer work. but it's it Sounds pretty, like a ton of work. Yeah, it's a ton of work, and it's um, pretty evenly divided. And so... In general, you know, we try to put together reading pairs whose work interfaces with that particular area as well as we can so that we have, you know, people who are pretty expert in the area reading. Uh, now, for the, for the pre-constituted panels, since we don't divide those up into areas, um, we have to rely on the kind of like general knowledge of all of our volunteer readers to be able to handle those. But even there, I as program chair will steer certain preconstituted proposals to one reading pair and others to another reading pair, depending on what I know of the expertise of the group. Are the proposals anonymous, or do the readers actually know the people who are submitting them? Uh, we know the names of all of the submitters. What we do is we we go through and make sure that there are, there are no conflicts of interest, like someone having to evaluate their spouse's proposal. But besides that, there's a, a sense that, you know, once the names are there, everyone, especially everyone on the board, knows everyone else uh, in the field to the extent that everybody is going to get assigned proposals from people whose work they know, who they socialize with at SCMS, and so on. So that's kind of inevitable, and we just have to assume that there's going to be a certain you know, level of, well, a high degree of professionalism involved in when you accept the, the job of evaluating. Could you say a little bit about what reviewers are looking for? And we could frame it as a kind of public service announcement. Here's how to improve the chances of your proposal getting uh, accepted. Sure. And I think that there are some criteria that go across the board. And then there are others that are specific to, for example, pre-constituted panels. To begin with, though, is there a clear ar argument? You know, a pretty obvious one there. Is it situated well within the existing literature? And is it making an original contribution to the field? Now, it's really interesting. One year, I think it was two years ago, we eliminated for that one year the bibliographic requirement that you put in bibliographical sources on your proposal. And we quickly, the next year, reinstated it because we found out how valuable it was. So that, for example, um, if a proposal is making an argument in an area where scholars X and Y have made really important contributions in the last two years and we don't see it anywhere in the proposal nor in the bibliography, then that would raise a red flag. So the bibliographic listing for your proposal is really an important piece. Now with pre-constituted panels, you know, we're looking for those strong individual paper uh, proposals, but we're also looking for a through line in the panel. 
is the panel itself making a clear argument or intervention rather than being just a potpourri of essays about X. So we want to see the overarching panel proposal telling us something broader that the four papers are all engaging with in various ways, but not just summarizing those four papers. And then with workshops, we're looking for topics that clearly benefit from the workshop format. And we really do expect the proposal to make it clear how the workshop is going to exploit the format. Because sometimes we get workshop proposals that are really panels in disguise. Those are going to get declined. So as I say, every reading group is, consists of two people who read every proposal that they're reading independently and rank it on a score of one to five. The idea here is that a 3.5 average is automatically going to get programmed. A three is kind of like a score that a reader would give if he or she is unsure about the originality or the coherence or whatever of the proposal. So the 3.5s and higher get programmed. After that, we end up with probably 70 or 75 panel slots that are still open. And that's when the program chair goes in and looks at the threes. Because a three isn't necessarily going to be a bad proposal. It's just going to be one that fell in the middle. So the program chair at that point will go in and look at the threes and start programming the best panels and the best open call papers out of those. How frequently is, are there vast differences between the ratings that the two readers give to the same panel? Well, part of what I... I do as program chair, or any program chair does, is set out instructions and guidelines for the reading pairs. And one of the things I say is, it's going to happen eventually that you're going to have a 1-5 split. This is why you need to have Skype conversations or phone calls after you've been ranking for a while, because I want you to resolve those 1-5 splits so that you're both on the same wavelength in terms of how you're evaluating. So they'll begin to see certain discrepancies come up, and then they'll have a phone call or a Skype conversation in order to reconcile the way that they're doing the ranking and you know, re-rank if necessary. I think that by the end of the process, everybody's criteria are more or less standardized. In terms of numbers, do you have from the scheduler, do you have, here are the number of slots we have, give me that many panels? Or do you say to the scheduler, this is how many panels we can create out of the submissions that we have? Um, yeah, that you're, you're raising a good point. First of all, I should stress, there's no uh, kind of like rubric that you're supposed to get 20% fives or 20% ones. There are no targets. And the number of panels that we can run really depends on the the hotel space and the number of rooms we can get, uh, you know, as well as the number of days we're running the conference, which I assume is going to become something we'll talk about later. It just happens, it's happened that there's been a nice synergy so that we've been able to accept all 3.5 and higher rank proposals and end up with a surplus of about 75 to 80 panel slots, which is really good because then we're able to go in and look at the various proposals that are in the middle and get the best ones programmed. 
So one of the questions that comes up quite frequently, and you sort of hinted at it just a minute ago, the question of four or five days for the conference. It was four days. We've expanded it to five days. That means more people have an opportunity to present, but it also means that there are greater challenges for individual scholars to attend the entire conference. Uh, it means that the perhaps the conference is spread a little more thinly. What are your thoughts on that? And what are the program committees and the board's thoughts on that four versus five days? Yeah, now this has been a subject that, you know, the board has constantly had to wrestle with. You know, remember that the five-day conference was originally an experiment, and we did it in L.A. for the 50th anniversary because we had to accommodate the pa papers from the previous year's disaster in Tokyo. And that was the rationale there for moving it to five days. But then we kept it experimentally, and so far we've been feeling like it works. Now, we know that it drags out the conference, that the conference can be grueling at five days. But in terms of the argument that uh, if it's four days, you can see the whole conference, well, with 24 to 26 panels going on at any one time, you know, no matter how many days it is, you're constantly aware of the fact that you're only seeing a fraction of what's out there. You can't do anything about it. And if we moved it to four days, I don't think that would resolve that problem. It might mean that people could be there for the in entire duration of the conference, but I don't see that there's that much of a, a distinction in terms of you know missing or not missing papers that you want to see. The downside at this point, I think, and I'm speaking for myself here, our acceptance rates are getting lower and lower as percentages every year across the board. And this is because our submissions are increasing, I wouldn't say exponentially, but since 2008 in Philadelphia, our total numbers of submissions have nearly doubled. And this is in every single category, workshops, open call, pre-constituted. So that means, for example, that just from last year Chicago to this year Seattle, our pre-constituted acceptance rates gone from 83% to 76%. Our open call has gone from 61% to 54%. Given that, as a professional organization, we really want to offer our members as much opportunity as we can for them to present their work, I think that going back to four days is really going to make the rates of declined papers and panels skyrocket, and it's not going to be good for the organization or our members, pe people who are on the tenure track, who need need to be at conferences, graduate students who need to make connections. So, Now, some societies have, instead of abstract submissions, they have full paper submissions. And clearly, that would increase the workload. Has there been discussion about using the SIGs more or the caucuses more to pre-vet papers? Um, okay. Well, it seems like those are two separate issues because the whole paper issue is one issue, and that hasn't really been discussed that much during my time on the board. However, having SIGs and caucuses involved in the vetting of proposals or solicitation of proposals has been. It's, it's been a perennial topic. So far, we've said no. Everyone, you know, on the board loves the energy and, you know, vitality that the SIGs and caucuses bring. There's a sense, though, that the conference as a whole is a conference of our organization as a whole, and that it would be kind of balkanizing to 
have subgroups of the conference end up programming what might end up to be mini conferences within the conference kind of thing. The idea here was that anybody in any area should be able to make clear to whoever the readers are the value of their work to the field. And that makes the, the conference a, a conference for and about all of us, and it doesn't sort of like reify certain specializations. But the other thing is, the board has always said, we rely on volunteers to be on the program committee, and we would love to have people in the SIGS and caucuses volunteer to be members of the program committee. And if they are, then they're probably going to get channeled to be reading proposals in the areas that, that they're involved with in their SIG. So, There was a recent post by Jason Mattel talking about some of the ideas that he has for the SCMS conference. And one of the big ones that caused a lot of discussion was the idea of eliminating the open call. The open call, on the one hand, allows more opportunity for junior scholars and those without uh, strong social networks across institutions to get their papers in. But it does add to the volume of papers. It adds to the length of the conference, perhaps. What sorts of discussions have happened around the question of open calls versus pre-constituted panels? Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with Jason's post, and I appreciate his desire to get the best conference that we can. In terms of eliminating open call, that has never been anything that the board, as far as I know, has thought about. I think the open call is important not only for junior scholars, but graduate students as well. I remember presenting at SCMS and all the way through my doctoral studies. Now, you could argue that if we eliminated the open call, that might force more of our members to engage in scholarly exchange before the conference, for example. And in fact, I think you had mentioned the high rate of acceptances in pre-constituted panels. I think the reason why the, the rates are higher there than they are in open call is simply because this collaboration beforehand constitutes a kind of peer review that happens before it even gets to the readers and the conference programmers. You know, that's a plus, but a part of the beauty of open call is that it puts people who might not have been aware of each other's uh, work into contact. And you'd be surprised at the number of senior scholars who submit to open call. I think the standard wisdom is that they all do preconstituted panels or are respondents. They get asked to be respondents and so on. But we get a number of open call proposals from senior scholars. You know, the other argument that I heard, and I think Jason made this argument, is that the open call leads to artificial panels. You know, like recent developments in media studies kind of thing. But this is true only in a fraction of the panels that we form from open call. You know, the program committee works really hard to put together coherent panels. And I would challenge people to go through the program and try to pick out which panels were created from open call and which were pre-constituted. I bet they would be wrong half the time. And I think part of it is because, you know, in a field like ours, there are certain questions, there are certain methodologies, there are certain texts that are just on the table at any particular moment or in any particular year, so that there, you're going to be able to put together coherent panels out of open call papers. I, I know for a fact that we have a panel on Zero Dark Thirty, 
which was just a text that garnered a lot of attention and we got a lot of open call proposals there. That's just one example, but um, our reading pairs work hard to put together really interesting panels and for the most part, the open call papers are really placed well. Now, it's such a complicated jigsaw puzzle to put together this schedule that yes, at the end of the line, we end up with 12, 14, 16 open call papers floating around and we can't figure out how to fit them anywhere. So yes, there is going to be, again this year, a recent developments in media studies panel. But it's a fraction of the panels that get put together uh, through open call. I think one more question then, the issue of publishing the abstracts. One common complaint, and in fact, I'll confess it's been one of my complaints, has been trying to determine what's the best use of your time based solely on the title of the talk or the reputation of the scholar or what have you. It seems like the technology should be available, hitting send and and uploading stuff. I'm guessing it's more complicated than that. Well, I know this is a subject that's been taken up by the board in the years before I got on the board. And I think there are two issues involved, and one of them is logistical. Building the infrastructure to do it, but even more importantly, having the personnel to put the time required to get everything online, I think, is one issue. But that's probably not a deal breaker. Although, do remember that most of the work that's done for us is volunteer. But I think the the other thing, there's a feeling that some scholars might not feel comfortable putting not yet published original work online. Perhaps, you know, if we ended up wanting to move in that direction in the future, we'd want to probably get a feeling or a sense from the members. And I know it's probably going to be split because there are some people who are totally involved in open access publishing and others aren't. So, I mean, I think it's a a delicate road to negotiate. I hear that I'm I'm more invested in the open side. I think that abstracts are useful and helpful to people and you know they will be presenting the talk after all. But even perhaps an opt-out possibility, okay, we will uh, publish all the abstracts unless you take some sort of action to opt out. Yeah. Who knows what what sorts of possibilities there might be. Something for the again for the members to let the board know about. Sure, I think I think it would be, but Again, I can't speak for the board on that issue. I'm just sort of like summarizing what has gone on in the past. So are there any other issues or concerns or just sort of interesting bits and pieces of this that we haven't talked about that you think the members and the listeners might be interested in? Maybe maybe one of the things that we didn't talk about is some trends. One of the things that's great about being on the program committee is you get a really broad picture of what's going on in the field. And of course, this is going to be impressionistic, but it seems to me that, to quote Barb Klieger from last year, there's a lot of attention to the M and SCMS, and that's increasing. One of the things that was really striking to me was sound studies, where for a long time, sound studies was kind of like the under-theorized element of our field. And I saw so many open call and pre-constituted papers and panels dealing with sound, voice, noise, that it was, it was very heartening. We're also seeing increased work in video games, 
digital culture, you know, as well as the areas that you would expect us to cover, you know, very well from our history, like international cinemas and so on. Uh, I think that the program is very exciting this year, and Seattle is a great town, so I'm looking forward to seeing everybody. I hope that people that I don't know will come up and shake my hand uh, and say hi. So, Angelo, thank you again for the work that you do and also to the readers who volunteer their time. I know it's a huge task going through these hundreds of submissions. And uh, thank you as well for explaining it to the listeners of Acamedia. Well, thank you. I, I was really happy to have the chance to talk to our members about the process. And, and I really want to thank the membership of SCMS for being such an incredibly smart group of people. <laughs> the people who make our conference what it is. Well, that was a good interview. It's a lot of good information there. Yeah, definitely. Especially things that we often grumble about, you know, because we don't really know what's going on. Yeah, it's a big organization, but it's not actually that big mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, who's actually running things and, and how things are put together. And so I think the biggest tip that comes out of all of this for me is... If you are curious about something, ask. And if you want something to happen, go to the members meeting and, and yeah, you, ask questions. And Can you say a little more on the members meeting? Because I think if anyone listened to that segment and wants to know more about what's going on with SCMS or wants to interact with the board and, and present some opinions about the future direction of SCMS, the members meeting is a place to go, right? Yes, absolutely. And that meeting is Friday, March 21st. It's from 11 to 12. It tends to be a really good opportunity to meet people. You know, you can put uh, names to faces if you haven't met uh, some of the board members. And it's a great place to bring up questions and comments. It typically tends to be, I haven't heard yet this year, but it, they tend to offer lunch. And right now, one of the big new developments is moving toward having a professional executive director who runs things. And I imagine that will come up at the members meeting. That'll be an, a great opportunity for people to give some feedback and, and learn more. Yeah. Well, we're not done yet with great SEMS information because Bill went the extra mile and got a second interview. Uh, we've heard now how all of our papers get picked. Now, how do they all get scheduled? Bill went to find out. It's like one of those, you know, those GRE puzzles where it's like Susie can't sit next to Bill oh, and, right. you know, those, those goofy things. So I really have no idea how someone could have the patience to put that all together, but Bruce does. Bruce does indeed. So let's learn about it. I also spoke with Bruce Brazel, who is an independent scholar who splits his time between New York and Alabama, and he is the one who actually puts the program together. Bruce, welcome to Acamedia. Well, thank you. So I think our listeners are first wondering how you actually go about doing it. Um, the chair goes, goes through and kind of decides what's going to be accepted into the conference, but we always work with the core number of what we think the total needs to be around. So we've gone from 150 10 years ago to around 430 now, and that's been about the total of the last three years, um, pretty consistent now. Uh, so that's how many spaces we have for panels and workshops. Uh, and those are laid out over the conference, not always exactly the same, but typically you could have about 23 every session. Uh, it has to be um, filled with panels and workshops. So as you're putting the panels into time slots, um, obviously you can't ask someone to be in two places at the same time. But beyond that, what sorts of criteria or considerations are you taking into account? The first one would be issues of conflicts of people participating or people that need to be um, not around for certain times. 
Then the second one would be, of course, uh, the, the topics in terms of using the basic categories we use disciplinary-wise to prevent overlapping topically. And then um, the third item I guess I take into play would be senior scholars. We have the question of, you know, we know those are going to be highly attended typically um, sessions, so those need to be spread out as well uh, and not overlapping too much. Of course, we obviously in every session you'll have more than one senior scholar, but they need to be spread out. And the same thing with the topical. Topically, you try to have everything spread out over the conference. And I guess like you think about generic categories, the conference has gotten so big that now that there has to be overlap. In other words, there's no way you can really lay it out without overlap, but you try to minimize it within what we, I kind of think of as traditional disciplinary categories. Uh, but also I look at what is the topic that year because that will affect the kind of panels we have. Like one year because of the topic, all of a sudden there were almost over a dozen and a half panels on festival, which is not a normal thing you would have. So that year I thought, okay, I need to basically make sure all the festival panels don't overlap. So areas that maybe earlier didn't overlap, now we're kind of, we have to do overlapping. So we have to overlap on TV TV panels. Now at one point you could have a TV panel every session. Now you have to have multiple TV panels, uh, similar to the way film is. Digital culture, before you could do, you know, one panel every session uh, on digital culture. Now digital culture is so big, you have to have multiple panels. Uh, and so sometimes people might get upset over the fact that things are overlapping, but it's because the positive thing is it's because that area of the discipline is growing. And, of course, the cinema area is shrinking <laughs> a little bit. So is all this by hand? Do you have software help, or is this all manual, analog, old school? It's a mixture. We have software, but the actual laying out of the conference, you really can't do on the conference. I mean, do on the computer system. So there's a system for um, collecting all the data. What I end up doing is I literally print out everything that's been accepted, cut it out into little pieces of paper, and literally just move everything in the living room. And I, <laughs> and I actually, I can give you the photograph of my of the cat. One year I, I laid it out. I was halfway. Actually, I got to the end of it, and I've learned that when I start laying it out, I have to take everything on the floor because if I don't, um, the cat runs in and just like slides straight through it. It's like, it's too tempting. Uh, and even now that I tape it, every now and then the cat will still run through and move a piece, a few of them. And so I literally lay it out on the floor and it takes up the whole living room floor. And again, it's a, it's a, it's not a one-time process. You lay it out within my categories, and then I start rearranging as I look at each set of sessions. So it's the way I kind of think of it is it's randomness within organization. So I kind of do the both together so that I'm not at the point where I'd say, other than senior scholars, I'm not looking at names per se. Senior scholar names I highlight, and I look at how they're laid out in the conference. But I leave a, a certain bit of, of randomness to it. And I think a great case would be to think about if you're laying out Asian media, I'll say, okay, I have four panels or five panels dealing with Korean cinema. Obviously, that's one every day. And then it becomes which one gets on what day. And if I have no senior scholars, well, then they're kind of a little randomness there. Because no one wants to be on Wednesday. Nobody wants to be on Sunday. So I put a certain bit of randomness within the system for that determination. So you said you don't really look at individuals, but do you go back and say, okay, this person has a workshop on Wednesday and then a panel on Sunday afternoon. Maybe we can 
do something about that. It's interesting that you asked that question because I just started doing that this year. Because <laughs> what happened was um, last year, the computer system is supposed to catch duplicates. You know, when you put two people in the same session, but unfortunately, the computer system's not catching them. <laughs> So I have to go through every time I lay out a session, I have to literally go through the index and find any duplications. But what's been good about that is, as I've been doing it, I've been getting more um, aware of where people are positioned. And I've ended up with people on the first day and the last day, last conference. There was probably about three or four people. And at that point, it was too laid out to, you know, to do anything. And so this year, what I did is as I was going through, I made sure nobody had was nobody was actually on both the last and the first day. But other than that, then you could be stuck anywhere in there. Sure, yeah. Uh, because, it, because then it goes back to it's another manual thing you're doing as you're laying it out. To make one change, once you've laid it out, you can spend 30 minutes trying to swap out two papers. <laughs> and you go, okay, I have to, you have to kind of weigh the benefits to doing something. I have to say, that sounds like a ton of work. It is. And what I and actually what I do is I take it and I just take really long. I mean, I do it in concentration. And where you just immerse yourself in it. And then you just spend two weeks in total immersion. And that's without the cat coming in and, and messing things up. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you have to send me a picture of this laid out in your living room. We'll put that on the website. I think that would probably give people a good mental image of how their how their week is being structured. Another issue is you have to decide what rooms you're going to put which panels in. So you have to predict who you think is going to attract a large group. And then we have the issue of on Sundays, what happens is all of the large rooms open up on Sunday because they were used for all the special events um, during the conference. So when we have the reception and all of those things, the, the um, business meeting, those are all held in large rooms that free up on Sunday. So Sunday, all of a sudden we have these rooms that hold 200 people. And, you, and it's kind of like, most of these panels are not going to really attract that larger crowd. And then who gets the uncomfortable position of having a panel with a small group of people in a humongous room. And again, that goes back just to the logistics of hotels, uh, the flow of the conference, that this weird quirk happens every time. And so that's another guessing game is, is figuring out, you know, estimating what you think the size of the audience will be. One thing I did one year, and I might go back to it, was I would actually leave all of the topics in the same room. I, I did that one year, but then, and then I tried to only move the ones I thought needed to go to the large room, and I would move them. But even doing that, you still have to do some moving around because you know you're going to have a panel that needs to be in a large room, even if you try to keep topically them in the same room. So I tried that one year and then realized, well, you know, it didn't always work as well as I thought it would. What would you say would was the biggest scheduling disaster that you recall? Have you ever had any? Oh, yes, I had one bad one. Um, was it three years ago? And I was so embarrassed afterwards. And I'd scheduled a workshop and a panel at the same time that have overlapping that once it was pointed out to me, I realized. And it's somebody who just died that year. It was a... Um, black film panel. I think the workshop was more like a memorial or something. And I put them at the same session as soon as, and somebody who was on one of the things called and said, you know, these really are the same. And it was, it actually was very embarrassing because I looked and I thought, oh, this is so obvious. I can't believe I did this. And so there's, there's always this room that you're going to 
because you're dealing with so much at one time and you're trying to get an overall picture of so much. It's, and it's, if you looked over things so many times that you actually don't see what you're looking at. <laughs> so is there anything else that you would like the members to know or be thinking about as they're experiencing the conference, as they're, as they're looking at their own schedule and the papers and panels that they're trying to get to? What would you like them to kind of keep in mind uh, each year? Another thing I started this year as I'm having to manually go through the index now, after each time I lay out a session, I have to manually go through and look at the index. And then I have noticed where people had panels back to back or workshops back to a panel. And so this year for the first time, I actually went through when I found those and I put them in the same room. <laughs> so they didn't, so they'll get, if somebody has that kind of situation, they now should actually be staying in the same room they were in before. I just, I couldn't get it to move to put another session between it. So that was the way I resolved that situation when it came up. Uh, so that's the first thing this year. But I guess, you know, historically, SCS, SCMS has been what people would call a boutique conference. And boutique conferences are very small. You don't have to worry about overlaps and those kind of things. And what's happened is SCMS is no longer a boutique conference. But we're not a large conference. And we're not like MLA. Actually, I guess you could say we're like an adolescent. And we have, and you think about adolescence bodies and how they're kind of all kind of, you know, odd. Uh, and that's the stage that I think we're at as a conference. And the deal is we're probably going to always be at that stage would be my guess. And so what does that mean when we're always kind of having these adolescent bodies as a conference? That's a great metaphor. Thank you for that. I will speak for the membership to, that's <laughs> quite arrogant, isn't it? But I will speak for the membership to thank you for the thoughtfulness and the care with which you put into this process. Oh, so thank you. I always have a great time at SCMS. I'm looking forward to Seattle. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for talking to us here at Acomedia. You're welcome. Another really great interview, and you will want to see the photos. Bruce gave them to us. They're rare and precious photographs from inside the bunker where all of this work is done. Yeah, you have to see these photos. And he's got a really good assistant. Yes. He's got talent. Yeah, I only wish I had an assistant that great. Yeah. Bill later talked to us after doing both of these interviews, and he said one thing that struck him from both is he said the board's attitude. He said he'd always thought of the conference as kind of a litmus test for quality, this idea of, you know, it's more prestigious if you reject a lot of papers. But in fact, the board wants to actually accept as many papers as possible and sees the conference as kind of service to the membership. And yeah. so I thought that was a really interesting takeaway from both of those interviews. Absolutely. Some of these things that seem maybe a little frustrating or difficult, like trying to deal with so many panels on at a time and the, the lengthening of the schedule, that does make participating in the conference a bit more of a challenge, but it also expands the inclusivity of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really important to give some credit to them for that, I think. Definitely. All right, uh, we've got one more segment left, and we wanted to try to help out those coming to Seattle, especially those who had never been there before. You have generally very little free time at a conference because the conference is so darn good. But with that free time, then, you want to make sure to maximize it. And so I asked for help on this from Jennifer Bean, who is Associate Chair of Comparative Literature and Cinema and Media Studies at the University of Washington. And I wonder if she could hook me up with a few scholarly locals in Seattle who could help fill us in on uh, local areas of interest at SCMS 
Seattle. So she delivered some very helpful people to me. So here I offer you audio clips from uh, UW grad students Kathy Morrow and Verena Kick. Plus, I'm reading some email tips that I got from UW professor Claudia Gordman. Good stuff. First of all, it's SCMS. You will need coffee. Luckily, you'll be in Seattle. Since Seattle is the home of Starbucks, you're never far from one when you're downtown. Just ask anyone. But for the original historical Starbucks, walk down to the Pike Place Market. Turn right and walk a couple of blocks on Pike Place. Also along Pike Place are all kinds of eats, two bakeries, including one very good French one called La Peignet, with good sandwiches, as well as real French pastries and breads and coffee, as well as stand-up windows for gyros and other ethnic foods. When it comes to a quiet cafe, to get away a bit from the hotel and maybe to talk with a publisher about a book project, I would recommend the Bell Epicurean on 4th Avenue between University and Spring Avenue. It is a French bakery that has delicious pastries and macaroons. It might be busy during lunchtime when many office workers stop by, but later in the afternoon one can easily grab one of their small tables and have a nice chat. One other handy place for coffee is in Pacific Place, an upscale shopping center one block from the hotel. The ground floor atrium there is nice for coffee, cold drinks, and light eats. Speaking of places to eat, Pacific Place has several restaurants too. Most pleasant is Il Forneo, an Italian restaurant at the far end of the main floor. If you want a real Seattle experience for lunch, find the cafe in the Pike Place Market that serves clam chowder. Go upstairs for a tiny table with an incredible view of the harbor and ferries as you slurp your chowder or eat burgers. Also a very congenial restaurant is the Pink Door at 1919 Post Alley. Great for an intimate or festive dinner. Regarding lunch, I would definitely recommend Cafe Yum, which is really close to the conference hotel. Cafe Yum started out as a small vegan and veggie restaurant in Eugene, Oregon, and has now branches as well in Washington State. Cafe Yum is all about its yum sauce, which is based on a mixture of garlic and peanuts, and thus it is very yummy. Usually, you order a yum bowl there, which means you get a variety of veggies together with some rice and cheese and, of course, the delicious yum sauce. When it comes to dinner, the Wild Ginger is a place that I would definitely recommend. It is an Asian restaurant and a satay bar. The staff there are always incredibly friendly and accommodating, and the food is exceptionally good. Also, La Pichet at 1933 First Avenue is a delightful, small, thoroughly French bistro serving classic fare, fantastic for both lunch and dinner. A little bit more of a hike, but worth a 20-minute walk or five-minute taxi for the best food in Seattle is the Tillicum Place Cafe near the Seattle Center, i.e. near the Space Needle. Reservations are definitely necessary for lunch or dinner. It's got a brilliant chef, a great atmosphere. It's small, so not appropriate for a group of more than four people. Seattle also has a lively Chinatown, which has its Southeast Asian, Japanese, and Chinese areas. Have someone show you the nearest entrance to the bus tunnel, hop a free ride to Chinatown, and explore and eat. Okay, so let's imagine you just delivered the paper of your life. Where do you head next to celebrate? Some of my favorite places are relatively close to the hotel. If you go across I-5, just up there on Pine and Melrose is Pine Box. They have a great craft beer list, good food, relatively big tables if, if you're not there too late. Also right in that area is Woody's, which has, I think, the best burgers in Seattle. After you've delivered a great paper and want to celebrate your success, you should head straight to Capitol Hill and to Art Fellas, which is an awesome restaurant. 
if you want to have good food and good drinks with a nice atmosphere and celebrate with three, four, five, or even more people, this is definitely the place to be. Okay, it happens once in a lifetime you deliver a bad paper. Where do you go to shake off the blues? Well, what I would do is I would walk over close to the hotel, um, a specific place mall, and on the second floor they have a trophies cupcake stand. So I would get myself a cupcake, and then I would take my cupcake out the other entrance of the mall on Olive, walk up a couple blocks, and on your right there is a doggy daycare with huge windows, the whole walls are windows, so you can look in and see the dogs, and it's really cute and I think would make anyone feel better. Um, Fun fact, Seattle has more dogs than children, so we love our dogs here. After you've delivered a disastrous paper and want to forget it ever happened, you should head straight to Capitol Hill, either to Lost Lake, a 24-hour dino with excellent food and cheap beer to drown your sorrows, or you and a pal should head to Pie Bar, because pie makes everything better. And pie teenies let you forget any mishaps you've had. If you do get a chance to get away from the conference for a half day or so, here are some ideas. Walk all the way toward the water and stroll along the waterfront. Seafood places with fish and chips are there, curiosity shops. It's touristy, but pleasant to breathe in the sea air and the bustle of the docks. For galleries and glimpses of old Seattle, hop on a free bus to the Pioneer Square area or walk there down First Avenue. I would say skip the Space Needle. It's overpriced and touristy, and it's frankly just as good to look at from the outside than from the inside. If you did want to get some different views of the city, one place that's kind of fun is Smith Tower, which is an older building over in Pioneer Square. And it's definitely not as tall as some of the places, but um, it has some good views and it's kind of a quirky, fun building. Another option is to find the Washington State Ferry Dock on the waterfront for a few bucks step on a magnificent ferry ride to Bainbridge Island and back. It's a half hour each direction. Imagine yourself in five easy pieces. On a nice day especially, you get gorgeous views of water in the mountains, and on the ferry you can fret over your paper if you haven't delivered it yet. If you have time for an hour in Bainbridge Island, it's an adorable town with bookstores and good eats just one block up from the ferry. A goofy tourist thing to do is to take the monorail. That's right, monorail! Built in 1960 for the World's Fair and still running, which takes you from Westlake Center, which is just a few blocks from the hotel, to the Experience Music Project right past the Space Needle. Uh, The EMP, Experience Music Project, is Frank Gehry's weird and wonderful museum of popular music and also houses a sci-fi museum. Speaking of other media study specific things to do, you can head to possibly the best video store remaining in the United States, which is Scarecrow Video. This is not within walking distance, but the Sheridan desk can point you to the right bus to get to the University District. I would recommend the Living Computer Museum. The collection presents the meaningful milestones in the evolution of computers, particularly from the 1960s to the 1980s. Their vintage computers are restored to working conditions so visitors can interact with them in a variety of ways. For queer spaces, I would say check out what is going on at Rebar, where they do drag shows quite frequently. In addition, the $3 bill cinema has a mix of campy to political films and cineoki. If the weather is nice, I would recommend to take half a day off and come see the cherry trees, which will be in bloom on the campus of the University of Washington, Or, even better, take the time to walk to Guestworks Park, starting at um, the University of Washington's campus. It is about a 30 minute of a walk, but you are rewarded with a lush green park 
send it around a former gaswork, and of course you are also rewarded with a great view of Lake Munion and the entire skyline of Seattle, including of course the Space Needle. A couple of random things about Seattle that I kind of wish someone had told me before I moved here. First, you'll notice Seattleites wait at intersections so they don't cross against the light, pedestrians, which is a little bit strange, but it's one of Seattle's things. One of the other things that is a bit odd is... So if you're at a bar that doesn't have servers and you need to go and just order your drinks from the bar, Seattleites line up. It's pretty standard. Instead of just waiting around the bar and expecting the bartender to come to you, everyone gets in a very civilized line and waits there to order their drinks. It's strange and it's worth knowing. Otherwise, I would say mainly just, you know, get out of downtown, go see some other part of Seattle because I think the rest of the city is more interesting, really, than, than downtown. The bluest skies you've ever seen are in Seattle. And the hills, the greenest green in Seattle Like a beautiful child growing up free and wild Full of hopes and full of fears Full of laughter, full of tears Full of dreams to last the years In Seattle In Seattle When it's time to leave your home and your loved ones It's the hardest thing a boy can ever do And you pray that you will find Someone warm and sweet and kind But you're not sure what's waiting there for you The bluest skies you've ever I'm going to have that Seattle song I know, it's, for, I'm, yeah, I'm if, doomed. My day's over. If you need to hear the whole thing, we do have a link to it on our website. And every single place you heard cited in that segment is a link to on our website, aka-media.org. And big thanks again to Jennifer Bean, who helped to connect us with Kathy Morrow, Verena Kick, and Claudia Gorman. Also a big thank you to um, Adam and Derek Fairholm for permission to use portions of the music Derek composed for Adam's documentary film, Pope Michael, as the background music. And that was a good, that was a good catch. There. Yeah, it's it's really good stuff. Um, I have just a few more Seattle tips to add, and this is courtesy actually of Anne Helen Peterson's Facebook page. She teaches at Whitman College in the Pacific Northwest and has plenty of friends up there. So she asked them for suggestions for things to do in Seattle. So I thought I would finish off this segment by throwing a few of those things out. So first of all, the sites people recommended, the Olympic Sculpture Park, the Washington Park Arboretum. So lots of nature spaces to think about how your paper went. Um, Ballard Locks. The Ballard Locks are actually really good. It's a Ballard is a great old kind of working class port. There's some good pubs up there, mm-hmm. and it's fun to go check that out. Uh, the Fremont Troll, which is apparently kind of an art installation, a statue of sorts of a troll under a bridge. Yeah, it's under the Fremont Bridge. The whole Fremont area has become a little more gentrified than it used to be, but it's kind of a cute little area down between UW and Lake Union. There's also Haunted Pike Place Market Ghost Tours, and I do love a good ghost tour. Every town I go to, I love to do a ghost tour. I wonder, do they, they probably go into the Seattle underground too. Ooh. You know, there's a whole like underground Seattle, the sunken city. There's got to be plenty of ghosts down there. Also, I don't know if Bruce Lee and Brandon Lee haunt Seattle, but you can find their grave sites. 
A couple additional restaurant recommendations. Westward, Staple and Fancy, Boat Street Cafe, Ray's Boathouse, and Paseo, and Purple Cafe and Wine Bar downtown for more upscale dining. Those are good. And for uh, drinks, the happy hour at Sazerac, I'm told. That doesn't sound bad. Yeah. There's a good little pub, the Two Bells Tavern down on, it's on 4th, down toward the Space Needle. It's a good little pub with with beer and chili and stuff like that. You know, not fancy, but... Well, we are CMS people. We don't do fancy. We're we're all down to earth. Yep. All right. Uh, One final tip to get to the hotel and back from the Seattle airport. You probably saw... Oh, this is good. ...that, yeah, SEMS set up a deal on a shuttle service. But Annie Peterson points out an even better, in other words, way cheaper option, is to take the Seattle light rail. It starts at the airport, leaves every 10 minutes or so, and about 40 minutes later, you'll be at the last stop, which is called Westlake. So you can't miss it. It's just wait till the thing stops fully. That's such a great plan. It's only three blocks from the SEMS hotel. It only costs a few dollars. Um, just one warning, those three blocks of the hotel apparently involve some hilly terrain. So if you have a ton of luggage or any physical challenges, the directional may work better for you. But otherwise, sounds like Seattle Light Rail is the way to go. That's so amazing that that's finished and, and in service. That's great. Don't forget your bumper shoot. Oh, what? Your bumper shoot. Come on, you're the Anglophile here. I know, brawly. I don't know what a bumper shoot it's is. It's a brawly. A bumper shoot is a brawly. Okay. It will mark you hopelessly as a tourist because, you know, Northwesterners just as a general rule don't use umbrellas, but yeah, go ahead, take it with you. I don't mind looking like a tourist. I am one. You know, I embrace what I am. So there you go. Once again, all of the links for everything we've just mentioned are on our website. So go hit that, aka-media.org, and you can find your way to any of the stuff we've talked about. Um, you can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at aka underscore media. So we are now on to SEMS, Michael. All right. Yeah. And we can't wait to see all of you there. And please feel free to come up and talk to us. Um, Of course, you may not know what Michael looks like, but check the About Us page to see how he's looking this month. Mm, I'm actually kind of curious to see how I'm looking this month myself. (laughs) We'll be wandering around with our tricorder-looking devices, capturing audio of the Mm -hmm. conference. So if you have any uh, comments that you want to share with the larger public, find us. Definitely. Acamedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the Department of Communication at Denison University. And we'd also like to thank the support of SCMS and Cinema Journal. And thank you to the episode participants, Angelo Restivo, Bruce Brazel, Kathy Morrow, Verena Kick, and Claudia Gordman. Our co-producers are Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison and Todd Thompson, whose golden years make it all work. And we'd like to thank our production assistant, Jillian Meisner. All right, we will see you in Seattle.